Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are in Matthew chapter 7, leaving uh, Mark. Okay, we're already 0 for 1. Mark chapter 7, leaving Mark chapter 6, where Jesus had uh, fed the 5,000. We're going to have the feeding of the 4,000 here in, in a couple of chapters. Fed the 5,000 Jews and then sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, walked on the water as if going past them but then actually got in the boat. He'd gone past Moses, he'd gone past Elijah, but here he actually stopped and got in the boat because Jesus is now manifesting, I am. So chapter 6 was basically, we can say, Jesus revealing his glory, or revealing who he was, his presence to the disciples, uh, and trying to reveal it to the crowd. And this is clear when we compare Mark 6 with John 6, because there, there's a big debate about Jesus trying to convince and show the people who he was. In John, a lot of times Jesus will say who he is, I am, or he'll talk about being the, the one who comes in the clouds of glory. So there's no doubt in John that Jesus is proclaiming who he is. In Mark, Mark is letting Jesus demonstrate. He is showing and doing things. Now, chapter 7, and you can make a decision about this, uh, it doesn't seem to necessarily be directly connected to chapter 6. It's like we're, we're, we're switching subjects, and it's going to be a conflict between uh, the Pharisees and Jesus. It's going to be a conflict between uh, ritual and reality. It's going to be a conflict about what was unclean in their cult, cultic practice and uh, what we would even say morals in this case right here. So Jesus, reality and morals, the Pharisees are in ritual and their uncleanness is not necessarily, it's not even referred to hygiene. It's not even a hygienic practice. It's, it's a ritual practice. And we're going to talk about this. And this book, or this chapter, is going to very clearly put these two in conflict with each other. Now, the Pharisees are going to be the topic here, and the scribes, and not the Sadducees or the priests in this case, because the Pharisees are going to have, uh, following the traditions of the fathers the traditions the teachings the oral traditions of the fathers which is the mishnah the mishnah was the oral traditions it was uh what they taught about the word of god it, we could call it a commentary but it was a little um, different than a commentary trying to tell you the background and the setting helping you study the scriptures it was uh, identified by them as a fence around the the torah now the mishnah would be uh, the, the oral traditions, oral traditions that were taught verbally. And then when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, they wrote them down in the Mishnah. And you can, you can buy the Mishnah. It was the written document of the oral traditions. The oral traditions were the explanation of the Torah, which would be the, the, uh, the Word of God, the Old Testament, uh, the, the Pharisees accepted the whole, all the prophets, everything in the Old Testament that we have. The Sadducees, the priests, only accepted the first five books. After that, they rejected the rest. And that's why you can see a difference between the Pharisee doctrine and the Sadducee doctrine, uh, like in the resurrection of the dead or in angels. You can get away with, you know, just if you read the first five books, that there's no resurrection, there's no angels, but it's hard to get that if you're going to accept the whole Old Testament. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees themselves had a conflict. This conflict is going to be about the Pharisees 
accepting or exalting the oral traditions that were used to explain the Torah or the actual revealed Word of God. And it it was, uh, like I said, it was a fence kind of protecting it because uh, you've got the Word of God and you can see this happening uh, in church history. You can see this happening in uh, just in churches today, uh, just in relationships with with people bringing others into the faith. You can see this in the Garden of Eden, of where this is the Word of God, and uh, it's probably too hard for you to understand it. So I'm going to tell it to you like this. I'm going to move it out here a little bit further, and just stay out of this area. So instead of teaching again, again, I'll, I, I I don't. I'm going to say some things that you could you could argue with me and say you're overstating it, you're making it too simple. And yes, that would be the case, especially as I, a Protestant in the 21st century, try to explain the Mishnah and the Torah from 2,000 years ago in the Jewish culture. It's like, okay, so someone that's an expert in this say, you've already missed it, okay? And I'll continue to miss it as I try to capture these thoughts. But... You can see this in legalism a lot of times. Instead of simply teaching people the Word of God and letting the Word of God combine with their born-again spirit and the Spirit of God and letting them mature and grow, you go right to a list. These are the things a Christian doesn't say, doesn't do. So if you don't go here, you don't do this, you are a Christian. And so now everybody's focusing on these. And again, in my mind, there's no growth because you basically joined a club. These are the things, or a cult, or a community, and we dress like this. Uh, this is a sign that we wear a cross like this. This is what we wear. This is what we look like. This is what we sing. This is how we talk. We don't say those things. We don't smoke this. We don't drink that, and that is us. We are Christians. It's like, how did you become a Christian? Well, I accepted Christ and started following these rules. And, and you, the intention is good, but it's like, in my understanding, you need to have your soul renewed, not just follow a bunch of rules. Adam did this, apparently, in the Garden of Eden. God told Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from this one. Satan came, or the serpent came, talked to Eve, and she explains, we're not even supposed to touch this tree. Now, if you understand, again, I may be making too big of a case about this, but God clearly says, you cannot eat from this tree. Eve, who wasn't there because God told Adam, and then later God takes Adam's ribbon makes Eve, so in a sense she was there, but she wasn't an individual. You know, how are you going to put Adam and Eve? He created a male and female, and Adam then took Eve out. And so it's like, now there's another whole conversation. And don't go too far with that right now tonight because of transgenderism and all this going on. It's like, whoa! <laughs> okay, but Eve would have heard the word of God from Adam. And so it would appear that Adam didn't say, well, we can eat from any tree, but we can't eat from that one. He said, we can eat from any of these trees, but we can't eat from that one. In fact, we can't touch it. In fact, you can't even go over in that part of the garden. You know, or I, you know I'm exaggerating. So it's, it's a natural tendency. And the oral traditions did that very thing. Uh, what's going to come up tonight, and we've got to spend a little bit of time developing it instead of just jumping in and saying it, which I am doing right now, is it's going to come down to washing washing your hands and the priests were supposed to wash before they went into the tabernacle that is the torah that is what the word of god says well by the time the oral traditions get there 
they had a whole list of things you had to wash. And it wasn't just priests. Everybody had to wash, wash your hands, including, you know, sometimes full and bodily immersion in water. It had all these rules. And there's no place where it says you've got to wash your hands before you eat anything. That that's not in the Torah. That was the oral tradition or the fence that was built around the Torah. And basically it's based on the ideal of the priests had to wash their hands before they went into the tabernacle. So if the priests have to wash their hands before they go into the tabernacle, we all want to be close to God. So you all just wash your hands and before you eat. And sometimes if the meal is long, you'd have to wash your hands several times. And then they had rituals for all kinds of washings. And Jesus and his disciples have violated a wide variety that was already in Mark, including being with a leper, you need to go wash. If you're with a, a, a dead body, you need to go wash. Uh, a a men, menstruating woman like the woman that with the issue of blood, you have to go wash. I mean, there's a whole list of things, and the disciples are just going on and on, or Jesus going from one unclean situation to another, and finally the, the, they, they attack Jesus' disciples here and say, Jesus, why are your disciples not washing their hands before they eat? And again, that would be an attack on Jesus because Jesus is their, their leader, their rabbi, and obviously they are not learning the lessons that you're trying to teach them, so their failure as a student is your failure as a teacher. You're unworthy to be a rabbi is kind of a back doorway of attacking Jesus for his failure of the, of the disciples. And Jesus is not going to even blink. He's going to blow them out of the water because he's basically going to say, you're looking at this, the oral traditions, which are not even the word of God. And if I push this any further, your oral traditions, to make your oral traditions work, you're going to have to ignore, neglect the Word of God to make sure you do your oral traditions. In other words, these have been created. They're actually in conflict, just like if you go to a legalistic church that says, these are the things a Christian does. Don't teach the Bible, but we're going to teach you these rules. For the sake of your traditions, you're neglecting the teaching of the Word of God. Yeah, but if I just teach the Word of God, these people might keep on smoking cigarettes. It's like, okay, is that your goal, is to get everybody to stop smoking? I'm using that as an example. You know, it's like, it's like just teach the Word of God, and the Word of God will shine light, and it will lead these people to maturity. And if you just want to have like a health program, these are the way to live a healthy life, well, you're just like the Pharisees. You're just trying to have some kind of a ritual or some kind of a health standard. And that's kind of what's going on in these chapters. Now, this is going to pop up in this chapter 7, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Um, but it, it hasn't been uh, an ongoing uh, issue because Mark's been talking about a variety of other things. But you're going to hear the scribes are going to be there. Again, the Pharisees from Jerusalem making the 90-mile trip up to Galilee, Capernaum area, are going to be there. And they've already been there. They've already challenged jesus on a couple occasions a few chapters ago mark's gone on and talked about a few other things but i think it would be safe to assume that this problem in mark chapter 7 wasn't there and then it went away and then now they came back again it's day after day the pharisees are hammering jesus it's just that mark's not telling you every time 
all the way through. He talked, introduced it, mentioned it a couple times. Uh, Jesus talked about the unforgivable sin, went on and talked about some other things Mark does. But now it's like, okay, let's come back to this issue. This is probably a nonstop, ongoing problem in Jesus' ministry in Galilee is the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are always there trying to undermine him. And this particular day that he's referring to is an attack on the disciples for not washing their hands. But it, could, it, it was just constant probably. Now, after this... Jesus is going to leave, and he, if we draw a real quick map here, Galilee, Jordan River, uh, this is Galilee right in this area. He's going to leave Galilee and go up to Phoenicia. He's going to come back through and go over to Decapolis, and he's going to be in Gentile territory. There's only going to be two more times he's going to be in, in Galilee in the book of Mark before he goes to Jerusalem. So in other words, this is kind of him wrapping up his Galilean ministry in Mark. It's like, okay, we're done with you people. Mark, kind of, this is why, and Jesus, if you look in chapter 23, excuse me, chapter 7, and we're going we're gonna to have to spend two nights on this, and when I say two nights, I probably mean seven nights. No, uh, you know, I, I was thinking, see, I've, in my notes, I aim for chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, and okay, I'm just going to get through this material, but then as, you know, it's like, okay, uh, we're going to take a, two nights on this. But okay, 1 through 23, we'll read through that. But then look in chapter 20, uh, 7, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Now that would be Lebanon, or he's going into, he's going into Phoenicia. He's leaving, and that is where he's going to uh, find the faith of the, uh, the Phoenician woman. Uh, and then he's going to heal a deaf man you can see later on in chapter 7. But now look in chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him. And that, that crowd, he's going to feed the 4,000. That is not a Jewish crowd. That is a Gentile crowd that has followed him back this way, and they're continuing to follow him. And he begins to multiply the bread for them and feeds 4,000. This is the second, uh, some really sloppy pathetic commentators and liberal scholars they they think mark got confused and got two stories and made two stories out of one story i mean they 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 think these guys are like cavemen writing on the wall with some kind of burnt stick or something and they got their stories all mixed up not realizing that if peter was there he's telling the stories and mark's recording it accurately so this is another whole entire feeding, and the setting is different, and this is probably Gentiles that have followed Jesus, and he feeds the 4,000. And then in chapter 8, um, chapter 8, he feeds the 4,000, and in verse 11, is now he's back in Galilee. Now watch this, chapter 8, verse 11, coming back from Phoenicia, chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came, to, came and began questioning Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and says, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back in the boat, and crossed to the other side. So Jesus, after chapter 7, it says he leaves and goes into Phoenicia, heals the Phoenician woman, uh, does, or a child does a variety of things there. The f- Gentiles follow him back into Galilee, or towards Galilee at least. He feeds the 4,000, and as soon as he's back in Galilee, the, the, the Pharisees are right back at him. Ha! We are your back. Now we got another question. If you're really the Son of God, really the Messiah, we're going to need a sign. And they've got all the... So this, this, this chapter 7 is probably one of just a hundred different attacks. They're just hitting him from every different angle. He comes back. We need a sign. He's ah. And he just, he just kind of saw, like it says right here. He says, 
uh, he sighed deeply and said, now he's been gone to Phoenicia, and we'll talk, that's a great story, the Phoenician, the Canaanite woman up there, and tremendous faith in the land of Phoenicia from different individuals, comes back to the Pharisees, and they hit him, okay, we'll believe if you'll do a miraculous sign, and he sighs deeply, says, why does this generation ask for miraculous sign? You guys, you guys are so pathetic. Got in a boat and goes to the other side, just, just right on past Galilee, and then goes over to Decapolis. And then from there, he's going to go up to Caesarea Philippi, and that's going to be, he's going to come back uh, again. Oh, I've got it written on this page. Let me show you the two places if I can see it very quickly on the notes. Oh, yeah, it's right there at the top. Point A, 1A, Mark or Mark 8, 10, he enters. And then in point B, Jesus returns to the Capernaum after Caesarea Philippi, where, you know, Peter says that he's the Son of God and, and Jesus is transfigured and th- those things. Uh, and they came to Capernaum. So now they come back to Capernaum, where you can see that's Capernaum there on the Sea of Galilee. This is the border of Galilee. That's the arrow going across the lake. You got all this really nice detailed map there. Uh, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had been arguing on who had been, was going to be the greatest among them. So that was them coming back from the transfiguration on the way back to Capernaum. So what are you guys talking about? Uh, and no one's ever kind of looking the other way, trying to make, break eye contact, because they're arguing about who is the greatest of the 12. And then from there, he warns them to be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees, and the, because they're back in Galilee, and from there they go down to Jerusalem. So this is kind of the end. Chapter 6, in a sense, is the end of the Galilean ministry, except for him passing through a couple times on his way to different destinations, which is kind of interesting to see. That, that's where we're at in the book of, of Mark. Um. Let's go ahead and read. First of all, I will read the, the NIV just so we can read it in the NIV. The notes are in the English Standard Version. We'll read all uh, 23 chat verses, and I'll try to uh, go through it. I, I will point out as we go through, look at point two as we go through here. Uh, you can tell that this is being written to Gentiles, and it supports the idea that Mark is writing this in Rome to Roman Christians because there's going to be a point to the idea that Mark is writing in Rome to Gentiles or Roman Christians is supported by the constant editorial notes. They're in parentheses in the, uh, in the English Standard Version and in the NIV since the Jewish audience would not need the necessary explanation. In chapter 7, verse 2, Mark has to stop to define what unclean hands are. Meaning, unclean hands, oh, they must have been in the mud. They must have been dirty, needed to wash your hands. We all wash our hands ex- before we eat, especially since COVID. Uh, we all, for a health reasons, not because we're Christians or Jewish or following cleansing. cleansing. So Mark's, the Jews would have understood this. But he stops and explains unclean hands. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, there's a parenthesis, Jewish custom of washing hands is explained. And in chapter 7, verse 19, there's a huge statement here in chapter 7, verse 19. It just simply says in parentheses, Jesus declared all foods clean, which would mean there's a clear now separation between if you're a believer in Jesus, you are not a Pharisee. The Pharisees have rituals for food. See, we're talking about cleaning, clean, clean hands, but they're also going to be talking about foods. And so there's going to be foods... The, G, all foods are clean. 
It has nothing. So if you're a Christian, I mean, if the, any chapter sets you free from the Jewish law, or especially from the traditions of the elders, the oral traditions that they built and added to the scriptures, this chapter, it, it's, it, you're, you're done with this. If you are still struggling, think, well, maybe I should be, well, you're not reading the Bible. You're over here in some camp somewhere some category because the, jesus makes it very clear all foods are clean this is not an issue you are not immoral or you are not unclean because you ate the wrong thing he's going to make it very clear you are your sin your problem your immorality your uncleanness comes from within you you are by nature unclean you don't need a pork chop to make you unclean you are unclean. What comes out of you pr- proves you are unclean. Not what goes in you. It's not like you're perfect and then you ate something you shouldn't have and now you're unclean. Just listen to yourself talk. There's your problem. And so Jesus is making that point right here. So anyway, chapter 7. Just listen for Mark's little explanations here because he's not writing to Jews. He's writing to non-Jews, which according to tradition, he's writing to the Romans in Rome. Here it is. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, scribes, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. I mean, that, you know, unclean. Oh, they're muddy. They got tar on them. They need to wash up. No. That is unwashed parentheses the pharisees and all the jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the traditions of the elders not the word of god the mishnah that hadn't been written down yet because it's still oral traditions of the elders when they come from the marketplace they do not eat unless they wash because in the marketplace here i'm teaching Uh, they could have bumped into an unclean person. They could have bumped into a Samaritan or a Gentile or touched something that was impure. Now, this is a huge moral issue, but it's not. I mean, you bumped into a Samaritan and now you're unclean before God. You're unclean before God for other reasons, not bumping in. But nonetheless, this is what the, the traditions of the elders had taught them to do to make themselves pleasing to God. But they're completely completely on the wrong track. And Mark is writing this. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, I can show you this very quickly. Uh, One of the things, like if you had a, a clay pot like this, if this clay pot somehow touched something unclean, it could not be made clean again. It would be smashed. You'd just throw it away. Uh, because you could not clean. Now, again, this is not like scientific. Like, where's the research for that? No, no research. It's the oral traditions. Uh, something made out of clay uh, like this would be thrown away if it was unclean. So then you'd find pottery. Sometimes it just breaks for a variety of reasons. But this is a, a pottery handle. You see it goes on the jar. This is from Hatesor. Um I'm looking for a picture of hates or if we got any. But, but anyway, that would be a pot. So that probably was broken for a variety of other reasons. But that would be an example of something just being thrown away and broken because it's defiled, it's unclean. But 
something made out of stone. Now, here's another jar handle. This is basalt stone. This is from uh, uh, Beth Shean, which is in, in Galilee. Uh, you can see the handle. This is broken. But if it's basalt stone, this could be washed. You could not wash a clay pot if it was unclean. Now, we're not talking about you made macaroni and cheese in it and you burn a little bit on the bottom and you can't clean it. It's like, it's totally ritual. It's not, well, I think we could get that out with, no, you can't get it out because it's, it's not even practical about cleaning. It's just unclean. But this, uh, something made out of basalt stone, I do not have a stone pot, uh, jar or anything. Uh, but this is, I picked this up at Bestian. Uh, but this, if this was all intact, this could be washed. So this would be a very nice Jewish piece that you could, oh, we, we'll just, wa- it's unclean, oh, just wash it. This nice Jewish piece, oh, we got to throw it away because it's unclean. And we're not talking about dirty dishes. We're talking about rituals. Okay, and so anyway, he says right here, again, even Mark says, and they observe, and, and Mark grew up in Jerusalem. His His mom's house is in the priestly quarter the church so mark knows he was steeped in all this so um, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups pitchers and kettles meaning at this point mark could have gone on and on and on about just listing all the things so the pharisees and teachers of the law asked jesus why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders Instead of eating their food with unclean hands, they are not following the traditions of the fathers or the fence that the fathers have built around the Torah. Now, again, this, this, the tradition of the fathers would have began to develop after the closing of the Old Testament and had been developed up until this point. Uh, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites now, be careful of hypocrites right here because we know that means someone who is saying they're one thing, but they're not. Be careful. Because these people are exactly what they say they are. We are washing our hands. We are following. They go out of their way to follow these rituals. They're not, they're not saying, you wash your hands, but I'm going to run over here and I'm not going to wash my hands. They are doing these things full, cover, uh, full force. Now, in our case, a hypocrite would be, you know, good Christians don't smoke. And then you come over here and you smoke, but you tell them, oh, no, I would never smoke. I'm using smoking as an example. I've always would like to smoke cigars, but I can't until Tony dies because she doesn't want the smoke in the house. So anyway, and that's not going to happen because I'm going to die first, even if I don't smoke. So anyway, I'm using that as an example. Don't say, oh, he's really stuck on smoking. It's like, no, don't. Nonetheless, um, so that would be, a, we would call that a hypocrite. Don't smoke but then you smoke. You're a hypocrite. This, hip, this idea, the original meaning of hypocrite simply means an actor. You put a mask on that's fake so that you can't see your real face. And so they are hypocrites in the sense that they're putting a mask on that they're presenting the oral traditions of men and covering up the Word of God. You hypocrites, you're, you're on, a, on a stage in a play with a mask on and we can't even see reality that was probably the idea more than that they are you know saying wash your hands but they're really not washing their hands so again basically saying isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites jesus picks up the greek word hypocrites uh you actors you play actors with a mask covering up reality 
as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, meaning whether it is worthless. It's like you think you're making progress, but there's no growth. It'd be like having this list over here. These are the things we should do. It's like you're worshiping in vain because that's not getting, you're not maturing. You're just following a list of rules and then feeling guilty when you don't, don't do this. They worship me in vain, but their teaching are but rules taught by men. Now notice, that's what Isaiah said in 700 BC. Their, they, their teaching are but rules taught by men. And now in 30 AD, the people are teaching the oral traditions of men and not the word of God. In other words, it's exactly, Isaiah says, you're just simply giving rules taught by men. And here they are. You're just giving rules taught by men. It's your club. It's not the eternal word of God that's not going to pass away. It's not even from God. It's you saying, okay, here's the word of God. Let's work with it. And then you create this entire list. You've got a completely different religion. He says, you have let, watch, this is a huge slam. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. You, you've, you've let them go. You've actually, here's the word of God. You've left the word of God and gone over here to these traditions. And you can see that taking place in the Garden of Eden. You can see it throughout history. You can see it in the church. You can see it today in churches. Here's the word of God. Okay, right. We're going to put that on the shelf. And here's what we do in our church. Now, you maybe pull out a verse once in a while, but it's so far out of context, you don't even know what it means. But you've got a church. Jesus, it's, it's, it's human nature. I mean, this, these are the Jews that were doing it. We can see it happening in the Garden of Eden. We can see it happening in, in the church age where they made the Bible illegal. We'll tell you what, just follow our rules. We know what's best. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. The word of God is getting in the way. And again, that's, he's being very sarcastic. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions or establish your own traditions. For Moses says, and he, now he gives an example. Now, this is far from washing hands and far from food. It's just an example. The word of God says, honor your father and mother. And also, anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, again, notice the parentheses, korban. Now, if you're Jewish, you know exactly what that means because it's, it's a practice. It's, a, it's part of the legal system. But Mark is not writing to the Jews, so he says that is a gift devoted to God. So if something was korban, and this is what they would do, it's, it's like a, it's like a, a, an estate. It's like a trust. It's like some kind of uh, financial, legal package you put together. But you have all this property or all of this inheritance that you want to have for yourself and you don't want to ha- be giving it away uh, to someone else. So what you'll do is, ah, you will, I, de- I dedicate all that I have to the temple. The temple would bring in the paperwork. Okay, you give us all to the temple. Sign right here. Sign right here. Now, understand, as long as you are alive, you have full rights to it, and we will not acquire this until you die. But understand, it can only be yours. You, you, we, you gave it to the temple, but we can't take it away from you because you need it for your life. 
So you keep it, you use it, but when you die, that's when we take possession of it. Oh. And so what that would do, that was the temples, that he was being good to the temple, the temples being good to them, but it's like, oh, it's like a tax shelter so or a family shelter you can keep it away from anybody no one can touch my stuff legally i'm sorry i would love to get involved and help you but everything i have i've already dedicated to the temple and you got parents that are in need or he's using parents it could be children it could be relatives it could be the poor you know i would like to help the poor but i've dedicated all that i have to the temple and the document allows me to keep it and use it until I die. But I would be in violation of my oath, my commitment, my contract with the temple if I gave it to the poor or I gave it to my kids or if I helped my mom and dad out. And in this case, Jesus has taken the mom and dad situation where the Bible says, honor your father and mother, but you've got your little corban going on here, this little legal document that's like, oh, I can use it for myself, but I'm protected. I don't have to give it away. And I'm just following God. It's like, no, you're not. You're nullifying the word of God. God says, honor your father and mother. But you've got this, the oral tradition. I don't have the word anymore. The oral tradition that says you can do this. And it all sounds good. It's all legal work. And guess who was an expert in this type of law? The apostle Paul. He was an expert in this law. When you talk about Paul being a Pharisee, you could as well say he was a lawyer. He was an expert in the law and knew how to position all these things around, follow the law, make sure he was clean, make sure he was righteous, all the paperwork's in place, and in total violation of the word of God. The intention, that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, uh, go to verse, verse 11. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Because you're honoring God by not honoring your father and mother. So you're not honoring God. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition. Your tradition is actually breaking the word of God. That you have handed down. And you do, and it says, and you do many things like that. that. That's not like, and that's the problem with Judaism. It's like your whole system is like that. And we, we start off talking, why, why are your disciples not washing your hands? Well, Jesus now is way over here in the legal matter of giving stuff to the temple, and we're going to end up talking about food. It's like you're, this is 360 degrees of Judaism is in violation of the Word of God because you're following the fence that protects the Torah, but actually you're just violating it. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable, about this parable. And Jesus, of course, being the kind, gentle teacher, says, you know, no questions. There's no stupid questions. No, he says, are you so dull? I mean, I got to believe that Jesus w- would say, you know, would not be one of those guys that says, now guys, come on, there's no stupid questions. Ask me. He would say, now that is a stupid question. Now, well, anyway, he says, these disciples asked him about the parable. And he says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? Now, he's not saying the man is clean and sinless. He's saying the man's problem is not what comes into him. Now he's answering the question about what comes into the man. What, are we eating unclean hands? Are we eating dishes and bowls? It's like, 
what, what he, well, he's, well, he says he's, he's gonna, now he's going to end up talking about food. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And look at here's a parenthesis. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So there is that, there's a, you could say, point of doctrine right there. Jesus declared all foods clean. And that's supported by what eventually is going to pop up with uh, Peter. And remember, Peter is the one supposedly behind this information that he gave it to Mark, who traveled with him. But Peter's the one who saw the vision of the sheet let down with the unclean animals and went to Cornelius' house. So there's a, probably a direct connection there. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's heart, here are the unclean things. It's not the, the food or the bowls or the people that you bump into in the marketplace. What's unclean is what's in your heart. I mean, your, your sin nature. Now, he doesn't say sin nature. I'm putting that theological term in there or reference. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean or make a man sinful or we, I would say the sin nature. You have a sin nature. Your problem is a sin nature and you cannot fix the sin nature with a bunch of cleaning rules. You cannot fix the sin nature with a bunch of lists and rules and regulations. You need the Word of God to penetrate your heart, to shine light and help you grow and bring life into a place of darkness. Okay, that is the context of what we're looking at tonight. Now, looking back on the notes, uh, point three, I've got a couple of references. i got these written up here, Romans 14 and Isaiah 29. I want to get to those. And then we'll come back next week and go through this a little more verse by verse in detail. Um, uh, point three the purpose of this section one the main section is to clarify that jesus and the pharisees have no common ground so mark is putting this in here right right here in this in this book and as you read this chapter he's establishing jesus is over here the pharisees and the jews are over here they, they are not there jesus not sharing their same views of cleanness or uncleanness uh the oral uh, concerning the oral traditions of the jews and the rabbinic judaism mark nullifies the need for the oral traditions of rabbinic judaism with this encounter in other words you do not need the oral traditions of the jews they're even saying they nullify the word of god so should we maybe read the mishnah and get in for, now again you can study the Mishnah, you can get insight into the culture i've got a copy of the mishnah downstairs nothing wrong with it but the point being that i use it for information you that's not your word of god that is not your regulation because it's going to nullify the word of god so for the 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 roman christian or the gentile christian it's like well this is judaism and again you can see how close judaism and christianity work in fact at this time uh up until probably 70 a.d and especially in 135 a.d after the bar Kokhba revolt uh christianity judaism was under the same they're under the same umbrella so Paul, all of his ministry that Paul did, he was under protection of Judaism because in the Roman culture, they would accept old religions. 
Uh, they would not accept new religions. They would not accept new fangled, you know, up and coming. But when they occupied Judea, Ju- Judaism was already there. So it's established. It's part of the culture. So it was legal. But once Christianity was identified as something, that was uh, declared, you can see it in Corinthians at, in, in, uh, or uh, Acts in, at Corinth, when they, the Jew, they were brought before the Jew, the Jews brought the Christians in front of uh, Galileo, and they wanted a decision, and Galileo heard it as nothing more than a doctrinal debate in from the synagogue because they, they'd broken away and went next door and started a church. The Jews did, but the synagogue came after their those that, that had started the church. Paul and the synagogue leader actually helped start the church in the synagogue leader's house. Well, they went to argue in court, and the court heard it and says. This is not, we're not going to judge you, your doctrine, and threw them out and started beating the Jews for bringing it in into the court case, and the Galileo just turned and walked away. Now, with that decision, you say, well, that's just a story, but with that decision, Christianity was legal because it was just a sect of Judaism to the Romans, to the, to the Greeks, what was going on. When the, when, when the Jewish wars broke out, now Christianity was on fire thin ice because you're part of judaism and the jews are at war with rome and they had went through a tough time there especially in 64 d with nero and throughout that time but once jerusalem fell christians came back and they began to separate and you had the jews and judaism and christianity was identified as its own religion and it was a new religion so it began to face persecution and they tried to squelch it especially when it started undermining the the old gods of the romans and the greeks you've got a new religion taking place of the old and the old was good see that rome was in a sense opposite of what we are we're always looking for the new fashion what's the new thing they're always looking in many cases the old the old was the foundation uh again i overstate that probably nonetheless point three a Clarifies that the Jesus and the Pharisees are, have no common ground concerning the traditions of the Jews. Point two, clarify for the readers the difference between Christian and Jewish understanding of these things. These five things, uh, the Christian and Jewish understanding were different. What is clean and unclean, the Jews were ritual. The Christians would be more morality. It would be more from your heart. It would be the inner person. Ceremonial and reality meaning the Jews could get into ceremony, but the Christianity was based in reality. In other words, it wasn't just a temple and a ritual. It was actual, you know, actual resurrection. Jesus actually in heaven. Uh, morality, it was more than just, again, a, a ritual. It was actual morality, right and wrong. Foods, and then living a life that is pleasing to God. What, what helped you please God? Now, we're looking at something in chapter 14 of Romans here next. Now, uh, two supporting portions of Scripture. We'll look at Romans 14 now, but we already referred to Peter and Cornelius in Acts 10. I could read that, but that's where Peter sees the sheet let down and has unclean animals, and Jesus comes to Peter in the vision and says, get up and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. Nice job, Peter, because Peter's following the Jewish law. And Jesus says, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean. And, of course, that would apply to the animals and the food. But then what knocking on the door was men sent from Cornelius, and an angel appeared to Cornelius, knocking on the door, saying, we've been sent to find Simon Peter. 
because uh, you've got a message for us. And he goes up to the Gentiles' house and preaches the gospel. And even while he's preaching, they are all filled with the Spirit, speak in tongues, they accept the message. And then Peter goes, oh my gosh, well, I'll baptize you. And they baptize him. And Peter gets called in front of the church in Jerusalem, which would include James and John, most likely, and a few other elders of like, we heard that you were in a Gentile house, Peter. Now, see, they're talking, you want to hear the, you know the story, you want me to read it out of the scripture, but they're, they're, you know, kind of chewing him out in chapter, here, let's just go to Acts, and you get, again, you've got to be sympathetic, because, again, these are our heroes, these are our heroes, chapter 10, Cornelius' house, um, and then go to chapter 11, chapter 11. I love in chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. So Peter's still, you know, he's going on and on and on. He's, he's waxing elegant about it. He's going to give the sermon. And the Spirit already came on. They got born again. It's like right in the middle of the night. He get, didn't even do an altar call. And so that's kind of interesting. Now, chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. A circumcised would be those Jews. Uh, uh, criticized him and says, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began to explain everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet coming, that's what chapter 10 is talking about, uh, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up. Uh, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and entered the man's house, Cornelius' house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring him you a message through which you and your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us, which would include the circumcised believers who were criticizing him and they thought they're fine because we're jews we're circumcised believers and we can have the spirit these gentiles you understand it makes complete but these gentile dogs who aren't circumcised that aren't jews aren't following the law there's no way they're going to get the spirit the spirit was sent to the jews god's people and then now these pieces but it came on them i i, I was against it too I, god told me to go uh, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us from the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, going way back to the beginning. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God, so he goes way back to Jesus talking to him, and the things that Jesus said to them did not make sense, but all of a sudden now he's in the middle of it. It's like, this is what Jesus was talking about. 
He says, so if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, now watch, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance under life. Well, this is bigger than I thought it was. It's like, they don't even have to jump through the hoops. Now again, it's going to come up a couple more times because they understand it. And even Peter up in Galatia, in Antioch, is going to backtrack on, his, on this very principle, and Paul's going to have to bring him up to speed. And, and Peter, right, right here, this Peter, is going to be reprimanded by Paul and have to get back on track, because even though Peter experiences, he's going to get pulled back into the Pharisee camp uh, and have to be brought out by, by Peter. Go to, go to uh, Romans 14. This is also very interesting. And, and this is, uh, again, interesting. Chapter 14 is interesting because, uh, how do I say this? I, I like the, I, I, at least as a teacher, I like the sharp sword. Right and wrong. You know, I like that sharp, you know, let's have a debate. Okay, I'm right, you're wrong. Here's the truth. Here's, it's like, it's like, let's argue this. I like a, I like a victory. You know, I, I like a victory. And it's hard for me sometimes, especially in, in, in Romans 14, and watch this, and you will see this. And I can jump in and uh, read uh, one particular part of the, of the verse. I'll show as we go by, where Paul, the Pharisee, is going to say very clearly, all food is clean. You, you can't, you cannot... You cannot judge food. All food is clean. And Paul was a Pharisee. Paul's, uh, we could even say potentially some of Paul's students may have been confronting Jesus. Because, you know, depending on where you're going to place Paul, he was uh, going beyond all those of his own age. Uh, He was, uh, you know, about Jesus' age probably. Uh, And so Paul, well, he was the one that was in charge of the stoning of Stephen. I mean, within a few months of the crucifixion, he's there heading up the group, giving permission, and has got papers from the high priest. So Paul is working for the high priest, traveling from countries, persecuting Christians eventually. So uh, Paul completely understands these Pharisees because that's who he is. And so I want chapter 14 to be, and I, I have to write this word on the board. Uh, I, want, I want the sword. I want right and wrong. I want Paul to slice and dice this, just like Paul over on this side was persecuting the Christians. I want him over here on my side now, and we're going to go to town on those that we disagree with. Bring that sword with you, Paul. But in this chapter... This is such a weak, flimsy word in our culture. I hate to even write it, especially in the month of February. Love. I know it's the great Christian word, but... This chapter right here is not the sword. It's Paul. Well, just listen to him. He's dealing with this very same issue. Chapter 14, verse 1, I'm reading the NIV. Paul writes, except him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, 
But another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, this without passing judgment on disputable matters. That's sometimes the funnest thing to be disputing is disputable matters. Like the pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, rapture. It's like, you don't know. I mean, we got verses, we've all, it's like, okay, we got to wait and see. One, one's right. Something's going to happen. But there's certain things we don't know. But I'm going to form an opinion. I'm going to write a book and I'm going to nail you. I'm going to bring the sword to the fight. Paul said, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's back this up. There are some things that are absolute, but there's some things that are disputable. Now, Paul's not saying he doesn't know, but he's looking over the congregation of all, well, in this case, the Roman church that he hasn't been to yet. He's on his way to visit. This is 57 AD. He'll be there in 62. Is that right? He's writing 57, 60. No, he gets out. So he'll be there in 60. So he's writing 57. He'll be there in three years. Okay, except him whose faith, now watch, one whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Notice, he does identify the strong and the weak. And I think we'd rather be the strong than the weak, but at the same time, your love is going to make sure you don't crush the weak and strike him with your sword. Galen. I'm talking to Galen here. Uh, The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. So you've got someone following dietary laws, and someone says, all food is clean. He says, this man right here says, all food is clean. Okay, but don't look down on this guy because, ah, you should understand this. How stupid are you? And this man over here who's following the dietary laws, he's very legalistic, going to try and please God, is looking at this guy who's eating everything and says, you wicked sinner, you are completely corrupt. He says, no, no, no. don't look down and don't judge. Don't look down on this guy who doesn't understand and don't be judging someone who's got more understanding than you do. Just let it happen. Just, you need love. Now, he's not supporting either side. I wish he would. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He's able to make this man stand, who's eating everything and has understanding, and he's making, able to make this man stand, whose faith is weak. He says, no, no, I've got to follow these dietary laws. It's like, he's serving God. God can make him stand, even with that, you know, understanding that he's apparently missing. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Now, we talked about food. Now we're talking about Sabbath. Now, Paul makes it very clear. Do not let anyone judge you on Sabbath. He writes that in Colossians. But he says, here again, you've got two Christians. He's not talking about the pagan and the Christian. He's talking about in your congregation, people are coming from different levels of understanding. They're coming together to grow towards Christ. Your unity is not in your doctrine, be careful right there what I just said. Your unity is not in your doctrine or your personality. Your unity is you're all looking to Christ. And your doctrine is all developing in Christ. Your doctrine may say this, but you're growing towards Christ. Your doctrine may say this, but you're growing towards Christ. Unity in Christ, again, again when I say doctrine, again, that's, I would have to back that up and say, you know, there's got to be some things that are absolute but we'll go on one man considers one day more sacred than another another man considers every day alike 
So one guy's got a Sabbath day or holidays, holy days, and another guy's like, I'll mow my yard whenever I want to mow my yard. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Is, do you have scripture and doctrine for that? Yes, I do. All right, You're, keep growing. This guy over here, yes, I think God wants us to not mow our yards on Sunday because it's the Sabbath. Okay, well, Sunday's not the Sabbath because Saturday's the Sabbath. Sunday's the first day of the week. They got up, had church on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, and then went to work on Sundays in the Bible. But you think it's the Sabbath? Okay, God will meet you where you're at. As long as you're convinced, fully is in his own mind. Again, we're not saying, you know, sincerity beats truth because you can be sincerely wrong and perish. But this guy has an understanding. And I can, I can see in my own life places where, oh, I, I've told you stories. When I was in college, I ran 14 miles a day one summer. Uh, I, I was trying to run 1,000 miles in, back in the 70s. That's how we trained for cross country. I got, I, got down, I got down to a 523 mile at a five-mile race. So I was running pretty quick for, well, myself now. But there's kids running a lot faster than that. But I was running pretty good. Um, got my mile down to 435 since I'm bragging. But nonetheless, um, and I'll tell you another story. In 1980, Tony and I are running the Pepsi Challenge, okay? Pepsi Challenge, is a, it's a 10, 10K race, 6.2 miles. And we, there's like four or five that we ran. It's a nationwide Pepsi Challenge. Now, listen, this is very, very pertinent. man. I, I, this is something I should not do, but I'm going to do it. I mean, not for time. This is a great story. You, you may not like it, but I think it's really great. Um, so we ran these Pepsi challenges, and Tony, all, you know, she's a state champ. We got 13 state champs. She's always very fast. She'd, she'd win her races. And I'd always finish in the top five or so, never win a race. But I would, you know, I'd be competitive. But, of course, I was running college cross country, so I was fine in these road races. But the Pepsi challenge nationwide. At the end of the summer, we're getting ready to get, we're getting, getting, we're getting married in August. And we're going to get married and go to college. And uh, uh, we got these little cards in the mail that there's the end of the Pepsi challenge and it gave us our fastest time and our ranking in the nation, you know, how we, and all our information. And uh, we look at hers and she was like, you know, out of all the, the whole nation, I mean, she was in the top eight or nine you know, seniors in high school in the nation for the 800 meters run. Uh, it used to be yards when she first started, but then it turned to meters later on in her high school career. But nonetheless, so she was, she was invited to na- nationals, all kinds of stuff. I wasn't that good. Um, if, if I was, you would already know. Um, <laughs> but uh, on her card, she was like, out of the whole nation, she was like, you know, 267th or 324th of all the, the females. And it's like, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's a six-mile run. She's a half-miler, so that's good. And we weren't, like, training for it. We're just out running these races and stuff. And, I, you know, I look at my card, and it's like, I couldn't figure it out. Because... Tony was 267th rating in the nation. And I look at mine, and it's like, mine doesn't, I don't have a rating. Mine doesn't, mine was like this, right? I'm, I'm, are you ready for this? I'm serious. This is the, I wished I kept the card. In my box, rate uh, number one. I thought, that don't make sense. I mean, I got beat every race. I got, best I got was third or fourth place. And she, she won some races. I mean, she won all of them, or especially her age group. So I, I thought, I don't know what's going on. It's like stupid Pepsi challenge. It's like, and then over here, her, it says, you know, female. 
Then look at my box. Female. Galen. They thought I was a girl. Right there. In 1980, I was the fastest female in the United States. I wish I could show you the card. I mean, and the, and the finals were in New York. You could travel to New York and run the national televised Pepsi Challenge. Of course, we're on our way to college. We don't have any money. I've never been to New York. I've never been out of Iowa. Um, I went to Indiana once. Um, but uh, you know what? Second, third, fourth, fifth ranked women in the nation, they're looking for Galen. They're wondering where she was at. And uh, so the point, it has nothing to do with food, but it has a lot to do with transgender. I could have been somebody if there was transgender back then. But Tony would not have anything to do with me. I wouldn't be married to Tony, but nonetheless. All right, that's a true story. Is that a true story, Tony? Amen. Okay, good night. Where did I get that far off track? What a way to end a Bible study. What a terrible way. Okay, I'll say this. Verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? Just leave me alone. Okay. To his own master, he was standing for One man considers, oh, I know, one day considers uh, one day more sacred than another. Uh, I, oh, I would not run on Sundays. The coach wanted, he even wrote me, I was sending in my miles every week. I'd send in my miles. I was running 14 miles every day. I was seven miles out, seven miles back, seven miles out, seven miles back. And I was getting faster. Uh, but I'd never run on Sunday. He goes, he said, I think you'd really see improvement if you'd ran, you know, you need to run those miles on Sunday. You can't be taking days off. Now, again, that's not good advice right now because you need recovery and you need to do interval work. And a lot, but this is the 70s. Uh, but my point there, in the 70s, there's no way as a Christian I'm running, working out on a Sunday. It's, it, viol- it's, it would be against God. And in my conscience, it would be against God. Uh, the coach, who was a very strong Christian also, was a little more mature. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, but I, no, you, I judged him. It's like, you call yourself, he's, he thinks he's a Christian, and he wants me to run on Sundays. And he's looking at me, you immature, you could be working out on Sundays getting faster, but your religious bondage is holding you back. So I was judging him, he was judging me. We were friends, we got along. But it's like, we, you know, we just kind of let it go. But as, as time has gone on, I began to realize, you know, it wasn't so much a matter that I, was, I shouldn't be running on Sundays. Is, is you need a break, son. You can't run 14 miles every day of the summer. And I just about did, except every seventh day I took a day off. And uh, it probably saved me. It probably saved me having the day off. So that would be a good idea, too. I am so sorry. What a crash landing. We're not even done. We'll pick this up next time. Uh, ah, I'll quit out of courtesy. I want to finish it, trying to land the plane. But just jump out, pull your parachutes, and we'll start next week. Father, do thank you for the chance. Look into your word. We ask that we, again, may continue to uh, grow, that we may continue to understand these things, that we would not be judgmental, but we would be definitely committed to your word and allowing your word to penetrate our hearts, to help us grow, to help us understand and mature to be more Christ-like. We do ask for continuous unity as we grow towards Christ and ask again that we might make, make a, a difference in our time in history, that we may be a light to our generation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll try to pick up with this, and I want to finish Romans 14 uh, next week. Thank you.